Now today, as we enter into Matthew chapter 3, we encounter John the Baptist who really functions as the last of the Old Testament prophets who was to prepare the way of the Messiah. And so you and I are going to be learning today from the Bible that at both the first and the second advent of Christ, an Elijah-like prophet is to come preparing the path for the Messiah. And today we're going to see that John the Baptist is the one who comes to preach repentance, and we're going to learn that without repentance and faith in Christ, no one will ever be a partaker of the glorious kingdom that is at hand. Now, I want to begin today by mentioning some doctrine about biblical history. And I want you to remember that the last of the Old Testament prophets that we have in our English Bible is the book of Malachi. Remember in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Malachi had predicted that there would be an Elijah-like prophet who would come on the scene of history, and he would prepare the path for the Messiah by preparing people's hearts. Now, that was written, if you notice, on the timeline in 435 B.C., roughly. There's some debate as to the timing of Malachi. But I want you to see that until the time of John, who's the fulfillment of what Malachi had prophesied, is some 464 years. We call that period the intertestamental period. And during that time, there was a prophetic void and really a prophetic drought in Israel. In fact, even Flavius Josephus records that there was no prophet in Israel to give the people revelation during that time. So I want you to think about in the year 29 AD, how shocking it would have been to be an Israelite. And all of a sudden, this man meets the people of Israel out in the wilderness, John the Baptist. And he is the fulfillment of what Malachi had predicted 464 years prior. He preaches repentance, preparing the people for the Messiah, and he ends the prophetic drought in Israel. Now, as we get to the first two verses here of Matthew chapter 3, we're going to learn two important facts that Matthew wants us to see. Number one, we're going to see that John the Baptist is the one who meets the people of Israel in the wilderness. And this wilderness motif, as you will see, is very significant and very important. But number two, what is the message of John the Baptist? It's repentance. Why? Because without repentance and faith, no one will become a partaker of Messiah's kingdom in the future. This is what Matthew recorded, Matthew 3, 1 through 2. He said, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now again, everyone notice that John the Baptist meets the people in the wilderness. This again picks up on this Exodus motif that we've seen in earlier verses in the first two chapters. Now, one of the significant things is that when God meets his people in the wilderness, it is often depicted as a betrothal. It is in the wilderness that God is alone with his people, Israel. It is in the wilderness that he has to provide for them. It is in the wilderness that he tempts them. It is in the wilderness that they are to trust in him alone. Now, the end of failing, but God often, even though they fail looks back at the time of the wilderness and his meeting with Israel there is something that was fond. Now, I'm going to list some verses. You don't have to turn to them, but if you're a note-taker, jot them down. Listen to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 8.16 about the significance of the wilderness meeting. Deuteronomy 8.16, it said, In the wilderness he, that's the Lord, fed you manna which your fathers did not know, 
that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Notice, what was the purpose of bringing them to the wilderness? It was to do good to them so that they would trust him. Now, what's interesting is oftentimes in the prophets later on, we see the idea of the wilderness is looked at fondly by God as the time that he's in a betrothal relationship with Israel. In fact, let me cite this verse, Jeremiah 2.2. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, says, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Now, we often think of the wilderness as a time of failing, and it was. Sadly, God brings the people of Israel into the the wilderness, and they ultimately fail him because of unbelief. But in the prophets, it upholds the idea that one day God is going to bring the people of Israel into the wilderness again for a do-over, and this time they're going to get it right, not by their power, but by God's grace. Now, where do we see that? Turn your Bibles to Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Hosea 2, 14 begins a section that promises the restoration of Israel. And what does Hosea promise that God will do? He's going to bring Israel to the wilderness. They're going to have a do-over where this time, by God's power and grace, they're going to trust and obey. <clears throat> Hosea 2, 14. Notice what it says. The Lord says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, that's the nation of Israel, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. In the year 29 AD, John the Baptist, preparing the path for the Messiah, meets the people of Israel where? In the wilderness. Maybe this time they'll get it right. Maybe this time they will trust in the Lord. But you know what? We know when we look at all of the data, the fact is Israel misses it again. But you know what? There's still hope. Why? Because one more time in the future, that is future to our day, God is going to meet the people of Israel in the wilderness. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Please turn your Bibles there. And if you look at verse 6, the woman that's being described there is Israel. It's a metaphor for Israel. And what is God going to do with Israel? This is in the 70th week of Daniel, the last three and a half years. Revelation 12, 6, it says, Then the woman, that's Israel, fled into where? The wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God. So there there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. The 1,260 days is the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. And it's there that Israel will come to faith in the Messiah. They will look upon the one whom they pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, as it says in Zechariah 12.10. All Israel in mass will be saved, as Paul said in Romans 11.26. Where will it happen? In the wilderness. So, brothers and sisters, it's very significant that John the Baptist at the first advent meets Israel in the wilderness. Now, in our application later on today, I'm going to show you that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we are not called to the wilderness to become holy. Rather, you and I are called to the fellowship of the saints in the church. 
And I'm going to lay that out because you're going to have mystics all the days of your life. They'll say, hey, if you want to be holy, go out into the wilderness and look at the owl. Go, go play with the chipmunks and shoot a deer and eat fish, and you're going to become holy. Er, that's not what the Bible teaches. We're not called to the wilderness, but the fellowship. Now, notice in verse 2 here, what is the message of John the Baptist while they're in the wilderness? He says what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the term for repent there is an imperative verb, meaning this is a command. It's not a suggestion or a helpful hint. This is a command of the prophet of God and therefore of God himself. Now, repent. Notice on the screen I have the Greek word transliterated, metanoeo. Let me pull up my pointer, break this term down a little bit. Meta is the prefix. Does everyone see that on the screen? Uh, Some of you have heard of metaphysics. That's the physics behind the physics. Meta can often be rendered either after or behind. Noeo is a thought or thinking of the mind. So literally, you have a change of mind or an afterthought. I like to think of it as a change of mind. Now, how does that tie into our definition? Well, notice repentance is fundamentally to have a change of mind and direction in life. It is synonymous with conversion itself. All right, now, I want you to think conceptually that all of humanity is depicted as going in their sin nature towards idols. If idols are here and the true God is here, and again, by the way, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But for the sake of my metaphor, indulge me. If all idolatry, idols, false belief is here, humanity in their sinfulness is going into idolatry away from God. What repentance is, is a turning from idols and turning to God in his terms, which is going to lead to what? Faith in Christ. So I'm going to show you in our application that repentance and faith are two sides of the salvific coin. If you've repented, you're turning from something, unbelief, and you're turning to belief. You're turning from idols, and you're turning to God. You're turning from sin, and you're turning to obedience. That's the idea of repentance. And that's why it can be used synonymously with conversion itself. Now, I want you to notice that John the Baptist gives us a reason why everyone should repent. Notice the explanatory for. Anytime you see an explanatory for, you should ask, what's it there for? Well, the reason you should repent is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the phrase the kingdom of heaven has to do with the rule of God coming to earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, one thing we have to address is why does Matthew use the phrase kingdom of heaven rather than as John, Mark, and Luke who use the phrase, the kingdom of God. Now, I learned something this week. I used to be of the belief that Matthew chose the phrase kingdom of heaven as a circumlocution for the kingdom of God because he was writing to a Jewish audience who would be offended if he would use God's name. The problem with that view is if you look at all of the data in Matthew, Matthew does use the phrase kingdom of God like five or six times. So certainly... He's not afraid of using it, and he doesn't think probably that it's offensive. If he thought it was offensive, he would never use it. I think a better view, and again, I've changed this week on this, is that the view kingdom of heaven is probably an allusion by Matthew back to Daniel 4.26. Remember in Daniel 4.26, it was where Nebuchadnezzar, really the king of the most important empire at the time, 
was reminded by Daniel that unless he would repent, his kingdom would be taken away. And the phrase in Daniel 4.26 says that his kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's, would not be restored until he recognized heaven rules. And so I think that that's an illusion by Matthew that, yes, it's heaven that's going to rule. Now, what is this idea of the kingdom of heaven being at hand? Notice in the underline, that verb, ingitso, in the perfect tense means this is drawn near. It is something that is always at hand, ready to break forth. What John the Baptist is teaching and what the New Testament writers teach is that when the first coming of Christ happens, it inaugurates the last days in which at any time now, the kingdom of heaven can break forth through the 70th week of Daniel. It'll enter into the millennial kingdom. And this is now an imminent proposition. Why? Because the last days are inaugurated by Jesus Christ. In his second coming, he's going to consummate the last days. Now, the kingdom of heaven or Jesus Christ's rule upon the earth is a tremendous blessing for all those who belong to Christ. But for those who do not belong to Christ by repentance and faith, it is the greatest threat that humanity faces. There's no greater threat. There's no IRS audit, COVID virus. There's no army. There's no nothing in this world that can happen to you that is the greatest threat as falling under the wrath of Jesus Christ when he brings the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is simultaneously the greatest blessing for those who belong to Christ, but the greatest threat for those who don't. That's why John the Baptist says, repent. Turn from idolatry and turn to God in his terms, faith alone in Christ alone. All right, now, as we continue here in verses 3 through 4, we're going to see that John the Baptist really does function like the Elijah-like prophet foretold in both Isaiah and later Malachi. Matthew chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, he continues. He says, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, now here's Isaiah 40, verse 3, in all caps, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now, dear ones, I want, to note, want you to note here that Matthew wants us to understand John the Baptist is, in fact, this voice of the one who was crying in the wilderness in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. He is the fulfillment of that. When did Isaiah write that? About 700 years prior to the coming of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the fulfillment. And isn't it interesting, where does John the Baptist meet Israel? In the wilderness. A direct fulfillment of that. Now, what was John the Baptist, this future prophet, to do according to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3? Notice he's to make ready the way of the Lord. He's to make his path straight. Here's something, if you lived in the ancient Near East during Isaiah's day, you would know exactly what Isaiah was talking about. And that was the idea that if you had a traveling dignitary like a king going from one nation to another, the people to show reverence to that king 
would try to make the road very smooth because they didn't have good road systems back then. And he didn't want this traveling dignitary or king to be jostled about and beat up as he's traveling to your nation. It would be a sign of disrespect. Well, that metaphor now is applied to the greatest king of all. Notice this is a reference to the Messiah in context. And who is the Messiah? He's Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. The greatest king of all is coming. And John the Baptist is to make his path straight, to show reverence to this great king. And so what does he preach? Repent and believe. Turn from sin, turn from idolatry, turn to God, believe in the Messiah. That's how he prepares the path. Now, it's also interesting to note, if you read this text in context, you have a voice of a man, John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. When you get to Isaiah 40, verse 5, two verses later, you have the voice of God. You have two witnesses declaring who the Messiah is. Think about later in this chapter, chapter 3, that we're looking at in Matthew. Jesus is going to be baptized. You have the voice of John the Baptist, but you also have another voice, the voice of God, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You have two witnesses declaring who Messiah is. Now, I want you to notice here, not only does John the Baptist fulfill Isaiah 40, verse 3 here, but notice what he wears in verse 4. Notice in blue, he wears the camel's hair and the leather belt. Now, is he just trying to make a fashion statement? I don't think so. I think what he's doing is he is deliberately lining himself up with the Elijah, the true Elijah prophet of the Old Testament. In fact, in 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah is dressed precisely this way. So John the Baptist does what Elijah does. Why? Because he is the fulfillment of Malachi. Malachi predicted there would be an Elijah-like prophet in the future who would prepare the way of the Messiah. Now, not only does John the Baptist wear then what Elijah wears, notice it says that his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, why locusts? Do you know under the Mosaic Covenant, the locust was the only clean insect that you could actually eat? And this shows that even though he, John the Baptist, like Elijah, lives under austere conditions, he is still steadfast in trying to obey the words of God. As the last of the Old Testament prophets bound by the Mosaic law. And yes, he is the one who comes to point the way to the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, what's the point of all this? What Matthew wants you to understand is that not only does Jesus Christ fulfill all of the prophecies found in the Old Testament concerning his person and his work, but John the Baptist, the forerunner, the Elijah-like prophet who was to come, he fulfills all that the Scripture said so that you can know on your darkest day that the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it was well-placed. The entire Bible fits like a glove. Jesus fulfills all the prophecies about him. John the Baptist does the same. In fact, let me show you some more evidence how John the Baptist fulfills all that was said about him in the Old Testament. I want you to see that he indeed was the fulfillment of what Malachi had foretold. Now, I'm going to use Jesus' own words here in Matthew 11.10, where Jesus here is talking about John the Baptist. Notice what he says about John the Baptist. Jesus says, this is the one about whom it is written. Now, here's Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you 
who will prepare your way before you. Now, let's look at the screen here for a moment. Notice the your, your way. Who's that? That's the Messiah in context. Who is the messenger before the Messiah? That's John the Baptist. That's John the Baptist. That's who it is. And notice the phrase, he will prepare your way before you. Where did you see that? You saw that in Isaiah 40, verse 3, written some 300 years prior to Malachi, make the path straight for the Lord. Make his road straight so he's not jostled jostled about this great dignitarian king. The same thing is being taught in Malachi 3.1. Now, we know that Jesus believes John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi 4.5. Why? Because he says so in Matthew 11.14. But I'm going to put up Malachi 4.5. Again, Jesus affirms Elijah, or excuse me, John the Baptist fulfills this. Malachi 4.5, it said, this is, by the way, this is the last verse. You got one more, actually, Malachi 4.6. These are the last two verses of your Old Testament. It's the very last prophecy of your entire Old Testament is about John the Baptist. It says, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Guess who comes as an Elijah-like figure? John the Baptist does. And as I'm going to show you in our application, this Elijah-like prophet comes at the first advent in John the Baptist, but there's going to be another Elijah-like prophet who comes at his second advent, in both instances preparing the way of the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, all of this is designed to show you that when you trusted upon Jesus Christ, your faith was indeed well-placed. All right, now... Let's go on to some application points that I have for you this morning. I have three of them that I think are fitting. Number one, we, and again, that's Christians, we should know that God sends an Elijah-like prophet at both the first and second advent of Christ. Why is that important? Because when you look at the data, the whole Bible fits like a glove. And I think it's edifying once you see the data, and you go, wow, this is, there's a lot of precision here. I think it's edifying. One of the reasons I believe in the Bible is because I've seen the perfection of it. Not just in predictive prophecy, that's astounding enough, but even in just the precision of how things are fulfilled and how magnificent the promises that are literally brought about in various individuals. Okay, number two, we as Christians should know that, I should say Christians should know that they are called to fellowship, not the wilderness. Yes, the wilderness is not the place for sanctification, If you go out and look at the moon and howl with the coyote, you're not going to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what happens in the fellowship, not the wilderness. Number three, we should understand that the kingdom of God belongs only to those who repent. If you don't repent in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven that is at hand, an imminent blessing but also an imminent threat, is only a threat to you. All right, let's begin with number one. I want everyone to understand that the Bible teaches that an Elijah-like prophet comes at both the first and second advent to prepare the way for the Messiah. We should know our eschatology. A big section of the entire Bible is comprised of the teaching of the last days. And this Elijah-like figure is to come twice. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know it from Jesus' own words on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. Now remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration, do you remember that there were two prophets who were bearing witness to who the Messiah was? 
Now, first of all, who were they? Well, it was Moses and Elijah. Now, why would God use them? Because they really represented the law and the prophets. Now, why is that important? Because in Deuteronomy 19.15, it declared that everything would be established by two or three witnesses. So you had Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. But remember, more importantly, you had a third witness. The Heavenly Father said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So you had your two or three witnesses right there. Now, notice then, after that happens, this transfiguration, the glorification of Christ, the foreshadowing of that, the disciples ask Jesus this question, Matthew 17, 10 through 12. It says, and his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Now, for our purposes, I want to focus on what you see highlighted in red and blue. I want you to notice first that in red is the promise of a future coming of Elijah. In blue is the affirmation that John the Baptist had already come in the spirit of Elijah. Now, what's interesting is in Greek, I'm going to point again to what we're in red and blue. This section in Greek is called a men day construction. Men day, they're two conjunctions with an ellipsis in between. Now, let me transliterate them. The first conjunction is M-E-N in English. Then it goes dot, dot, dot. There's a bunch of words, and then it'll be day, D-E. Now, why am I boring you with all that? Because one of the things that Bob and I would learn in seminary when we're learning Greek is that construction literally is on the one hand, but then on the other. That's how it's to be literally rendered. So literally, you could render it this way. Jesus saying, on the one hand, Elijah is coming and will restore. By the way, notice the future verb there, will restore all things. But on the other hand, I say to you that Elijah already came. That's a construction in which Jesus is affirming two things to be true and negating neither one. Is it true that there's a future Elijah that's coming who will restore all things? Yes. But that does not negate the fact that John the Baptist, according to Luke 1, 17 as well, came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus is affirming that. That's the idea. So yes, it is true that there's going to be a two-part arrival of Elijah. Now, what's very interesting is in the book of Revelation, we see this very fact that in the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, an Elijah-like prophet will show up on the scene of history. Isn't it interesting that on the transfiguration at Christ's first advent, you had two prophets, Moses and Elijah, on the mount? In the last three and a half years of the, trans, of the 70th week of Daniel, you're going to have a Moses and Elijah-like prophet again. Now, where do we see this taught? We see it very clearly taught in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 and 6. Notice what Jesus is speaking here through the angel the angel, by the way, here is speaking with the authority of Christ. So this is Christ's very word, right? He says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Stop there. How long did Elijah shut up 
the sky from raining, according to Luke 4.25? It was three and a half years. That's what Jesus said. So these two witnesses, one of them being like Elijah, is going to have his ministry in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, right? Now notice in verse 6, it describes these two. It says, these have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, how do we know these two prophets in the last 1260 days of the tribulation period are going to be like Moses and Elijah? Because the text tells us. Notice the Moses-like prophet is going to have the power to do what? Turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every plague. Who did that in Exodus chapter 7 and Exodus chapter 8? Moses did. So one of these prophets is like Moses, but what's the other prophet like? Well, the other prophet has the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain. That's exactly what Elijah did if you read 1 Kings 17 and 1 Kings 18. Transfiguration, first advent, Moses and Elijah are there bearing witness to the Messiah. Last three and a half years, second advent, during the parousia, you have a Moses and Elijah-like prophet bearing witness to the Messiah. Now, what's very interesting is we're going to find out also that where does Elijah come? He goes to Jerusalem, but where is Israel during this time period? They're going to be in the wilderness. That's where they're going to be found in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Why? Because at the wilderness, at the final wilderness gathering, there's a do-over for Israel, where they will finally come to faith during this time in the Messiah. They failed in the first wilderness in the Exodus. They failed at the next gathering at the wilderness with John the Baptist. But in the last three and a half years, they will end up trusting in their Messiah and they'll receive their kingdom. Now, what I want you to see then is how Malachi 4, 5 is fulfilled. Notice here, Malachi, the last prophecy in our Old Testament, said, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The question that should be asked of this text is, what does it mean that Elijah comes before the great and terrible day of the Lord? And there has been two primary answers throughout the history of interpretation in Christianity. The first interpretation, by the way, notice here the cross represents the first advent of Christ, the 30-some years of his life. This little diagram here is to denote the last seven years. The midpoint here is at the three-and-a-half-year mark. Now, some scholars believe that John the Baptist is it, that this Elijah-like prophet has come, and he came obviously before the day of the Lord that occurs within the 70th week of Daniel. However, that seems to me to negate the idea that Elijah is coming again. And we just learned that an Elijah-like prophet will be prophesying what? Notice on the screen the last three and a half years, the 1260 days, along with a Moses-like prophet. Now, I believe that the day of the Lord begins here. Well, how is it that Elijah comes before that? Let me put up Elijah at Christ's second coming. Well, there's two different ways that we understand the day of the Lord. Listen carefully. I'm going to teach you some eschatology. There are two different ways that we should understand the day of the Lord. Let me illustrate this by explaining a conversation that I had with my grandpa many years ago. My grandpa died at age 95. Um, he's beloved by my family. He was just a great man. 
I, I, he was a believer. I longed to see him one day in the kingdom. I remember sometimes I would ask my grandpa, I said, Grandpa, how much was the gasoline price in your day? And when I used day in that way, he knew that I wasn't referring to a 24-hour period, but I was referring really to that broad period of time that he was a young man first learning to drive. And he would say to me, oh, it was like a nickel, right? It wasn't 319 a gallon now, as it is now. But there was one time I was bringing him to get his hair cut. He was later on in years, he's in his 90s. And I asked him, I said, Grandpa, where were you on the day that John Kennedy was shot? And there in context, he knew that I wasn't using day to refer to a broad period of time, but a narrow 24-hour period in which the president of the United States was shot. And he told me exactly where he was. In the same way, the Old Testament prophets would use the day of the Lord normally for a broad period of time. That would be the time in which God would finally and forever save his people and finally and forever judge his enemies. And that broad period of time begins at the inception of the 70th week of Daniel. Do you know why? Because that comes like a thief. The Apostle Peter believes that this is a long period of time because the Apostle Peter says the day of the Lord, 2 Peter 3.10, comes like a thief. But in that same verse, he says it incorporates the destructions of the heaven and the earth. Well, wait a minute. That's after the millennial kingdom. So it goes literally thousands of years. It goes on into eternity. That's the broad day of the Lord. But there are two rare occasions where the prophets referred to the 24-hour period in which the Messiah would come back a unique day in which he would enter into judgment with the enemies who were surrounding Jerusalem. Now, that phrase is called the great and terrible day of the Lord. Does everyone see this phrase? The only other time in the entire Old Testament that that phrase great and terrible is used is found in Joel 2.31. The only time in your entire Old Testament that the phrase great and terrible day of the Lord is used is Joel 2.31, Malachi 4.5. Malachi was borrowing from Joel, who wrote 400 years earlier. If you go from Joel 2.31 about the great and terrible day of the Lord into Joel chapter 3, do you know what it's about? It's about the final battle around Jerusalem that occurs at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. What does Elijah do? He comes just prior to the great and terrible day of the Lord, that one unique day that the Messiah comes and destroys the enemy surrounding Jerusalem. Jesus said, on the one hand, Elijah is coming and will restore all things second coming. But on the other hand, Elijah has come, and they did whatever they wanted to him, John the Baptist, first coming. The Bible teaches both. That's the biblical data. And brothers and sisters, when you put all this together, it fits like a glove. Proving that when you trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ, your faith was well placed. That's what it's about. All right. Now, let's move on to talk about the need for fellowship, not the wilderness. Sadly today, many people believe that the key to sanctification and becoming more godly is not coming to church and learning the word of God but to somehow get alone in the wilderness and have some form of mystical experience. That's what they believe. You'll see many Catholics like St. Anthony, one of the desert fathers from the 7th century, who will try to claim if you want to become holy, you've got to go into the wilderness. Now, 
I want you to think about the fundamental misreading of the idea that you and I should go into the wilderness. Usually the thought pattern is this. If you ask somebody, why should I go into the wilderness? They say, well, Jesus did. I just want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. But you see, that's confusing two different types of Scripture. What I like to refer to as descriptive Scriptures versus prescriptive. So, for example, let me give you an illustration. Does the Bible and the Gospels not describe the fact that Jesus walked on water? It does. It describes what he did. But is it prescribed for us to walk on water as well? I mean, and and I'm not talking about the Minnesota hard stuff when it's 20 below zero. We can do that. But I'm talking about the soft stuff, right? The liquid stuff. No, it's not prescribed for us. Jesus describes that he died on the cross as substitutionary atonement. Should we go do that? No. Now, metaphorically, we are to pick up our cross, and the idea is that we're to suffer, be willing to do that, but we're not to literally go to a cross and die as substitutionary atonement. Why? It won't do anybody a lick of good. We all have sins that we deserve to be punished for, but Christ never did. That's why he died once and for all. So the point is we have to distinguish between the descriptive and the prescriptive. Jesus went into the wilderness, yes, but it's not prescribed for me. Why did Jesus go into the wilderness? Because he had to be the faithful son that Israel never was. He went to the wilderness for you so that you don't have to. So what the Bible does prescribe for us is that you and I are called to fellowship. Let me explain what the early church devoted themselves to. This is Acts 2.42. Notice what Peter says regarding the early church. He says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, one thing I want to talk about here is I want to talk about this idea of the apostles' teaching. What is that? Well, that's the word of God. And what about the breaking of the bread? Well, that's the Lord's Supper. That's what we're going to be partaking in today. And, of course, we know what prayer is. Dan did that for us today in the announcements. But I want you to see that fellowship is the arena in which these other three things, the the prayer, the Lord's Supper, and the Word of God are dispensed. What is the fellowship, the church? It is the arena in which the Word of God, the Lord's Supper, and prayer is dispensed. Now, as you're looking at this, you might be saying to yourself, well, wait a minute here, come on now. This is just describing what the early church did. But where is it prescribed that we should do these things? Well, it is prescribed elsewhere for us as well. For example, the apostles' teaching, does it not say in 2 Timothy 4.2 that Timothy, who was a pastor, was to preach the word in season and out of season? That applies to every pastor at every church for all time. Preaching the word in season and out of season means never stop. That's a command from the apostle Paul who speaks for Christ. We are to never stop preaching and teaching the word. So that is commanded of us. What about the fellowship? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's put that up. Acts, or excuse me, Hebrews 10.25. The writer of Hebrews says, We are not those who are what? Forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What are we not forsaking? The assembling together or the fellowship. Why? Because we're commanded to do it. It's not just for them back then, descriptive. It's for us today, prescriptive. Are you with me? Now, what about the breaking of bread? 
That's the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read it to you today. 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus says through the Apostle Paul, do this in remembrance of me. That's an imperative. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. You may want to do the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a command. It's prescriptive for us. What about prayer? Doesn't Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, that we are to pray without ceasing? Now, that doesn't mean 24 hours a day, you know, every 60 minutes, every 60 seconds for every, you know, it doesn't mean that every second. It means don't ever take a time off where you say, hey, you know what, for the next three months, I think I'm going to give up on that prayer thing. I've tried it. I'm not doing it anymore. No, we are to continuously be the people who are devoted to prayer. Never taking time off. Why? Because it is through these means, the teaching of the word of God, the encouraging one another in the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, that God is going to transform us in the renewing of our mind. You go to the wilderness, you're going to bring your sin nature with you, a sin nature Christ didn't have, and it won't do you a lick of good, but drive you to paganism. But you go to the fellowship, and you hear the word of God, you're going to have a mind that's transformed so that you can be conformed to the, not to the image of this world, but to that of Christ. You and I, brothers and sisters, are called not to the wilderness, but to the fellowship. Now, one thing I want to point out here is turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke 1, 16 through 17. Luke 1, 16 through 17. I want you to turn your Bibles there, if you will. And I want to point out one thing about John the Baptist and how his ministry, yes, it's relevant for us as believers in Jesus Christ, Gentiles living during the church age. But I want you to see how it was directed towards the sons of Israel. And again, this may explain why they were called to the wilderness, but not the church. Luke 1, 16 through 17. Here you have the angel speaking to Zacharias, the, the father of John the Baptist. And the angel revealed to him, this is Luke 1, 16, it says, And he, that's John the Baptist, will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now here's from Malachi 4, 6, the last verse in your Old Testament, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Dear ones, the wilderness wandering was for the people of Israel. It's not for us. We are called to the fellowship, the assembly of believers. All right. Now, I want to talk about repentance and why that's essential for salvation. And I want to, in particular, handle this issue where you have in some circles today people who will divide the idea of repentance from saving faith. Some will claim that repentance is a works-based salvation, whereas faith is a grace-based salvation. In fact, some go so far as to claim that the Apostle Paul never taught repentance. Their idea in hyper-dispensationalism is that Paul was the apostle of grace, but the rest of the apostles were apostles who were connected to a works-based repentance. It's not true. What I want you to understand is that repentance and faith are two sides of the salvific coin. If you're turning from idolatry and turning to God, you're turning to have faith in Jesus Christ. They go hand in hand. In fact, Jesus himself teaches us this in Mark 1.15. 
Here's the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry recorded by Mark. Notice it says, and it was saying the time, this is Jesus, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God, same thing as kingdom of heaven, is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, again, the repent and believe is not a suggestion, it's a command. To turn from idolatry, to turn to God on his terms, which is faith or belief in the gospel. Now, what's the gospel? The gospel is the good news centered on the person and the work of Christ. So repentance is turning from idolatry, turning to God. And when you turn to God, you're believing in whom? The person and work of Christ. That's the salvific gospel that Jesus first preached. Now, for those who claim that the Apostle Paul never taught repentance or preached it, I'm going to show you that that's not true. In fact, here, Paul is at the Oropagos, Acts 17.30. This is Paul preaching. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should what? They should repent. Oh, my goodness, Paul did preach repentance. Why? Implied is if you repent and turn from idolatry, you're turning to Christ in faith. So, throughout the New Testament data, like if you read the book of Acts, there's three things I want you to put together. The first two are repentance and faith, two sides of the salvific coin. If you have repentance, tails, it automatically leads to having saving faith. And if you have saving faith, it's because you've repented. They go hand in hand. And so in the Bible, if you're repented, implied as you believe, and if you believe, it's because you repented. And what is to happen to those who repent and believe? They are to be baptized. They are to be baptized. If you repent, you're to be baptized. If you believe, you're to be baptized. But it's for those who believe, those who repent. That's the data that we find in the New Testament. Let me show you an example. Here's Peter, Acts 2.38. What is the summary of his message? It says, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. Did Peter not believe that salvation was by faith? No. Implied is if you repent, you're turning from idolatry and you're turning to faith in Christ. Both are implied. And if you do that, what? You should be baptized. You notice it's only for the believer? Now, fast forward to Acts chapter 8. There's an Ethiopian eunuch, the most cursed of all men, far off from the promises of Israel. But you know what? He finds the Messiah. How? He's reading Isaiah 53, but he can't understand a lick of it. So God providentially uses Philip, the apostle who sits next to him, who explains that it's all about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And at one point, this eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch, far off from God, says, what's preventing me from being baptized? I want to be baptized. Notice the condition that the Apostle Philip puts on it. Acts 8.37, the very next verse, and Philip said, this is to the eunuch, if you believe, stop there. Why should he be baptized or how could he be baptized? The condition, if you believe. That's who should be baptized. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Notice, you can repent and be baptized, and you can believe and be baptized. Why? Because repentance and belief or faith, two sides of the salvific coin. 
If you repent, you have faith. And if you have faith, it's because you repented. They can't, you can't have one without the other. It's like peanut butter and jelly, right? Brothers and sisters, why is this important? Because John the Baptist laid out in the wilderness for the do-over for Israel that the only way anyone would ever become a partaker in the kingdom that's coming through Jesus Christ is through repentance and faith. If there's someone here today that is not trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ or someone who's listening, today is your day. Today is the day that you need to repent and turn from idolatry, turn from unbelief, and turn to God in his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins in the promise of the glorious kingdom, the kingdom that's at hand. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for sending John the Baptist just as you had foretold in your Old Testament scriptures, Lord. We are thankful that both Jesus and John fulfill all of these prophecies literally that we may know that our faith is well-placed in your Son. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd give us ample opportunity in the weeks and months and years ahead to proclaim this gospel for the salvation of sins, that others would listen to it. I also pray for my dear brothers and sisters who are hurting, those who are sick. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would heal them, that you would speedily bring them back to us in the fellowship, and that you would allow them to know that they're loved by you. Heavenly Father, I do pray for us that we would be those who persevere in the faith, that we'd be not just hearers of the word, but doers, living lives that are pleasing to you, all before you come in Jesus' name. Amen.